The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business, markets, and financial professionals around the world. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. On Wednesday, my colleague Swaha Patnaik and I had the pleasure of speaking to European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde for an hour. We covered a lot of ground, as you can imagine, ranging from the role of central bankers in combating climate change to the emergence of digital currencies. We discussed what happens if the U.S. economy charges ahead while Europe languishes given the botched rollout of vaccines. Madame Lagarde, who previously ran the IMF and the French Finance Ministry, takes on these questions and more in our exclusive discussion. Without further ado, give a listen. Hello, Madame Lagarde. How are you? Hello, Rob. I'm very well. Thank you. And you? I'm great. Yeah, I couldn't be better. Thank you for joining us. Um, before I pass you over to Swaha, um, I thought I'd maybe just ask you a sort of basic, broad question, which touches on not only your current role at the ECB, but your extensive experience at the IMF before and before that in the, in the French government. Um, how concerned are you, or, and, and should we be, about what we see as the sluggish pace of vaccinations against COVID uh, in the European continent, relative to the US and the UK and some other places, and you know the potential for that to create an imbalance, if you will, in growth rates, prices, the price of money, that kind of thing. How how, how should we and how do you see this? I think we should all be very concerned that vaccinations move as moves as fast as fast as possible throughout the world. So I wouldn't focus on any particular region. I would focus on the rollout on a global basis of vaccinations. If there is one thing that you know, we all took out of the uh, IMF World Bank meetings that took place last week is that the world is not going to be safe until everybody is safe. So having said that, uh, things change fast. And uh, what has been very fast is the finding of vaccination to begin with. And it's clearly the case now that there is a ramping up element, there is a rollout element about it, and things are going to continue changing uh, almost as we speak. You know, the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccinations, which, you know, were regarded as one of the uh, key five vaccines are now being suspected um, in the U.S., as well as in Europe. And things will continue to change. I think it's, it's a process that we have to go through uh, and that we are experimenting uh, almost on a daily basis. But vaccination is a key and it is a key the world over. It's not specific to a particular region. And you, so you're not particularly concerned that the US seems to be sort of roaring out in some, in, in some mismatched way with Europe that creates some imbalance with trade or interest rates? Look, it's not only related to vaccination. Uh, there are lots of components about it. Uh, the fiscal response, the change of administration have also had a key role to play in the way in which it is, it is happening and it is perceived. All right, we'll, we'll dive down further into that. Swaha, I pass the mic to you. Thank you, Rob. Madame Lagarde, great to have you with us. Great, ask... great to see you too and good afternoon. Thank you. Rob's already got uh, going with one of the biggest risks and uncertainties. Um, let me ask you about two other specific risks, one to the downside and one to the upside. First, how concerned are you that there might be parts of the economy which end up far more badly scarred 
after COVID than we'd initially anticipated? Secondly, on the flip side, do you expect to see much of a positive spillover from the massive US fiscal stimulus that you just alluded to? Okay, following up from uh, the, um, the upside that we can anticipate and the spillover that we can identify out of the uh, US uh, fiscal stimulus that has been voted. Uh, it's, it's still early days, but clearly uh, the ECB staff has already uh, begun figuring out uh, what the spillovers will be. And we're considering, and this is preliminary assessment, that there will be an impact on European GDP of about 0.3% at the end of our uh, medium term uh, exercise, which is 2023. And that there will be an impact on inflation as well of about 0.15%. So there will be positive spillovers as a result of, as I said, what has already been voted by Congress in the US. There is clearly more that is in discussion at the moment that has not gone through Congress, uh, which we don't really know yet what the amount will be. Uh, but what we know is that it will be over a much longer period of time. So I think that the assessment and the measurements of spillovers will have to uh, be, uh, be, be done in a very careful way, depending on which year uh, those, uh, those stimulus, I wouldn't call them stimulus, I would probably call them investment and transformational um, financing will affect the US economy. Now, turning to, uh, and what I've just said is clearly an upside risk uh, that, that we are seeing um, in, in the medium term. And we think, by the way, that the major impact will be in 2022. So of the 0.3% that I was referring to over the horizon, we think that about 0.2 will actually take place in 2022. Now, you are referring to the uh, other element, which will have to do with um, a staggered um, recovery, if you will, where clearly some sectors, some countries, uh, will take a bit longer to recover uh, given the, the sectors and given the countries. One good example of that is transportation, which will be uh, affected, which will be scarred and which will transform itself probably uh, in, the, in the, the years to come. Uh, another one is the entire sector, which has been subject to the social distancing restrictions and will probably continue to be affected by those social distancing measures. They will take longer to recover. Those countries equally that are uh, that have a large um, portion of their uh, economy that is um, driven or geared towards tourism will also probably take a bit longer to recover. But you know, I, 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 I'm very cautious as I'm saying that because we have been amazed, all of us, I think at the way in which uh, the corporate sector, the private sector and households, families, people have actually responded to the crisis and have managed to, to adjust, to change the way in which we work. Look at you, you're working from home. I spend a lot of my time also working from home and operating with teams and using you know, these uh, web-enabled uh, mechanisms. And it is not, I think, uh, you know, reducing the efficiency uh, that, that you display, that I try to display as well. You talked about the corporate sector just now. Let me ask you about bankruptcies. 
It's been a very odd year. We've had a huge economic downturn, but government support has managed to prevent a lot of bankruptcies on both sides of the Atlantic. It's not just about Europe. How concerned are you that as government support inevitably starts to be withdrawn, we will see this wave of bankruptcies? And do you think banks are adequately prepared with their early warning systems finally tuned enough to deal with what we might see coming through the next well, there, you know, there is no question that we will see uh, more bankruptcies going forward than we have in the last um, in the last year, and this is for very simple reasons that we all know. Uh, the guarantees that were put in place by governments, the moratorium that were decided, and sometimes the the court system, which uh, didn't work, were suspended, uh, were under lockdown. Uh, all operated in such a way that the number of bankruptcy filings has been significantly lower in 2020 uh, than it ever was before. So we are likely to see inevitably a catch up and some of those companies that would have filed for bankruptcy come what may in 2020 with or without, or without pandemic rather, will probably uh, resurface and will come to join the ranks of those that will file for bankruptcy. I think what will be critically important is the risk assessment uh, that is organized in a most efficient and prompt way by governments in order to distinguish between those corporates that suffer from liquidity needs and those that have solvency issues. Because clearly uh, the, the goal of everyone should be to avoid that a liquidity crisis from, of those corporates morphs into a solvency crisis. And I'm hearing that you know, quite a few governments are already putting in place those mechanisms in order to expedite the risk assessment and to secure and protect those uh, segments of the corporate sector that are only suffering from liqu liquidity risks. You ask the question uh, of the banks, and the banks are going to be critical players in that uh, risk assessment mechanism. And I know that they are very concerned about it and they want to be focused on that because they're talking about their client base and they want obviously to support those client base as much as is possible, but of course, as much as is reasonable. Hence, the, the, the real importance of this uh, good risk assessment. We believe that um, you know, banks are pretty solid. If you look at the um, core tier one capital ratios, it's at the highest level it has ever been. If you look at the overall capital ratio, very high as well. I think it's 15.6 for the first one, over 19 for the other one. And their liquidity uh, coverage is also very strong. So they are currently in a very strong position, including uh, to you know, face some of those risks that would result from uh, a larger amount of bankruptcies than what they've seen in 2020. And I believe that the supervision uh, uh, body within the ECB under the leadership of my colleague uh, Enria has actually conducted uh, stress tests uh, in order to validate that. So that, that's reasonably comforting uh, but it requires that the impairment be measured properly, that things be done uh, in, a, in, a, in a prompt and, uh, and uh, efficient way uh, in order to distinguish, as I said, liquidity risk from solvency risks. Let me turn to the non-bank financial sector. You recently said that it needs to be made more resilient through regulatory change. 
Could you talk us through why you think they need regulatory change or what sort of things that you've seen during the past year that may make it better for you? Well, you know, I think that uh, we, we all observed back in March 2020 uh, that the money markets in particular was uh, creating tensions, including uh, through sectors of uh, the financial world that was uh, quite significantly regulated and were supervised. And that prompted all central banks of the world. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm talking about the Fed, the Bank of England, uh, Bank of Japan and, and ourselves to actually in, uh, get involved and make sure that uh, we could face the risk of liquidity crisis that uh, occur, could have occurred had we not acted at the time. So I think it is the joint intention of all parties uh, through the FSB in particular, the Financial Stability Board, to make sure that those risks do not arise again and that enough regulation and supervision is exercised to those sectors of the financial markets that were left a little bit out of the regulatory and supervisory arm. That's to give you an example. Thank you. Let me turn to the ECB as an institution itself. Crisis, like the pandemic, shaped not only our economies, but also institutions. The ECB is not the same institution it was when the euro was set up more than two decades ago. How do you think the pandemic has changed the ECB, its thinking and what it's prepared to do? You know, I think any institution evolves over the course of time and uh, crises uh, are generally great circumstances to actually prove your mantle and demonstrate that you can respond and that you can show the agility and the ability to adjust uh, that, is, that is called for. And I think that uh, on the occasion of the March 20 uh, crisis, very uh, obviously, uh, as a result of the pandemic, uh, I think the ECB has demonstrated its capacity to respond very quickly, to respond massively, uh, to um, break the mold, if you will, by demonstrating its unlimited commitment to the euro and by uh, being creative in the way in which we addressed both uh, the financing needs of the economy with our targeted uh, financing schemes and by uh, addressing the risk of fragmentation that we could see developing uh, at the time back in March. So we came up with Teltro on the one hand and the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program, which was the largest ever as uh, we moved into the, uh, the pandemic crisis. So from, from a pioneer institution as it was 20 years ago, it has certainly matured and, uh, and gained in, in, in depth, in strength, and in responsiveness uh, for, for a successful uh, response to the crisis, I think. One of the problems with the creativity has been, it has also incurred quite a lot of criticism and say constitutional court challenges. I mean, do you think some of this creativity will stay limited to the pandemic era, or do you think it can live beyond that? I think that uh, the pandemic moment uh, required uh, emergency response and the PEP, which is Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program. I mean, all you can find all the, all the keywords in there was specifically dedicated and designed in response to that pandemic uh, crisis. And uh, 
it's it's an additional tool compared with other tools that exist and that will continue to be used uh, instruments that you know include the uh, very low rates that we have at the moment uh, the purchase programs that are in place and that pre-existed uh, pep uh, the um, financing schemes and the uh, forward guidance so these four elements if you will are the sort of basic uh, instruments that we have uh, given the situation um, that we're facing of this, this lower bound current environment. And PEP is an add-on uh, that was specifically designed uh, for the pandemic situation and the emergency requirements uh, that called for, uh, as I said, breaking the mold in order to respond and, and uh, actually uh, deliver on our mandate of price stability under those circumstances. And let me ask you, I mean, what is very easy sometimes is to give support to the patient. Withdrawing support is really hard, even if the patient is convalescing. I mean, um, we saw in 2013 Ben Bernanke's taper tantrum. Now the world is much more indebted, companies and governments. So are you concerned at all that central banks, not just these European central bank, but any of, you know, central bank, major central bank, risks a huge in the bond market if it does start going down that road? You know, we have to look at the situation as it is and as it evolves. We are still clearly dealing uh, with the pandemic crisis. Uh, most countries in Europe are going through a third wave. Uh, we are still um, uh, swamped with uncertainty and not a day goes by without, you know, yet another change, yet another vaccination hiccup, yet another uh, increase in hospitalizations. So we consider that both fiscal and monetary support are needed and will be needed uh, until the pandemic crisis is over. Uh, you know, when I think of the economy, I think of, of a patient uh, I know this is not very good medical analogy at the moment, but think of a patient which is out of the deep crisis, but still on two clutches. You don't want to remove either clutches, the fiscal or the monetary, until the patient can actually walk fine. And to me, that means support well into the recovery so that economies can actually operate, walk, uh, and function properly without support. For the moment, that support is needed and that will be needed well into the recovery. Absolutely. And as we said before, there is the risk of scarring and all those sort of, um, you know, forward thinking that you're looking ahead to. What would be sort of the necessary and sufficient conditions, if you like, looking ahead a few years for you to start thinking about this? We have a, a reaction function that has been very clearly identified uh, back in December. And the reaction function is to preserve favorable financing conditions. And this is clearly something that we are going to stick to and that we have uh, clearly demonstrated in our latest decision in March. Preserving favorable financing conditions is for us a condition for the economy uh, to recover and for our price stability mandate to be, uh, to be respected. They, they go hand in hand. And to do that, uh, we're going through a, a twofold uh, process, if you will. 
uh, we want to make sure that uh, conditions are favorable throughout the economy. And that means addressing the uh, uh, risk-free interest rates, the uh, sovereign bond yields, uh, the financing conditions available on the, uh, for the corporates and for the households. And determining whether compared with previous such data, there has been an improvement, there has been stability, or there has been a worsening. That's step number one. Step number two, which is part of our joint assessment, we determine how those favorable financing conditions actually help us get back to the inflation path that we had pre-pandemic, pre-COVID-19, if you will. And it's on the basis of that joint assessment that we determine our monetary policy. We did that back in March, and very clearly it was considered by the governing council and by us uh, at the executive board that it was needed to significantly increase our uh, purchases, which we did. And are you happy with the response? Because the financing conditions are almost day to day, the lifeblood of the market is telling you some of the financing conditions. Are you happy with where we are now? We uh, try to look at, um, you know, we don't look on, on, a, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. We have to be a little bit, uh, uh, we, we need to have a, a, a longer horizon than that. But it's the fact that what was decided back in March has had an impact. And, uh, and uh, continues to have that impact. Perfect. Let me start turning a little further out. Uh, I mean, it's in the central bank's DNA to look forward. So while we're in the middle of a health crisis, central banks everywhere look far enough forward to plan for you know, midterm horizons. You started uh, when you came to the ECB, a policy review. Um, it was a strategy review. Sorry. As, yeah, absolutely. And. Um, as part of that, you or senior officials yourself, you've been talking to a wide range of people in a sort of ECB listens uh, sort of outreach program, if you like. What are your main takeaways from what the central bank has been hearing and how does this feed into the ECB strategy review? Uh, you, you're very correct that we conducted that exercise of reaching out, listening and bottling in uh, in order to make sure that that actually is part of our strategy review. And that was conducted at the ECB level and at all national central bank levels as well. So in each of the 19 uh, member states of the euro area, such exercises were conducted. Let me tell you uh, what, uh, what key concerns we heard. Uh, I think concern number one, uh, expressed by those who uh, joined was the issue of measurement of inflation. You know, how prices increase, why, how do you measure it properly? Uh, do you account for, uh, say, for example, uh, food and energy? Why is, it not, uh, why is it not included in core inflation? And more to the point uh, for people's concern, is housing cost, which is so important, particularly for young people, is that really factored in properly in the uh, inflation measurements? So that was concern number one. I think concern number two, which um, we took away as well, was the concern that people had about some externalities uh, that impact prices, that impact people's life 
and that impact the risk horizon and assessment that people conduct. And I mean by that climate change. If we did not hear it on the occasion of the ECB listens, we will never hear it. The third component um, had to do with um, income and pension. So as you can imagine, all these things, inflation measurements, climate change, uh, impact of monetary policy on, on income, all of those points uh, will, will find their way into our strategy review when it comes to inflation measurements, when it comes to the impact of climate change, when it, come to, it comes to externalities and the assessment of monetary policy. The Federal Reserve is a little way ahead of you. It started before you did its Fed review and is a little bit way ahead. I mean, central banks in the developed world are all independent. But to paraphrase John Donne, no central bank is an island. So I was wondering whether you think that what the Fed has done, which is to say that it will tolerate some overshoots in inflation and that it is really gunning for more inclusive growth, does that shape how other central banks think and will it shape central banking in general? Somebody has to go first, and that's the vanguard, perhaps. I don't know whether you think this is appropriate or any of this may have a gravitational pull for the Eurozone in the future. Well, you know, first of all, I would observe that I, I started the strategy review as I started my job. So there was no way I could have started earlier, which is why um, uh, Chair Powell was a little bit ahead of us. And, and I'm, I'm leading that exercise as, as fast as I can, because I think it's important uh, that as we will be transitioning, hopefully post-pandemic one day, uh, we have a strategy review that is, that is firm and, and, and well understood. It's difficult to compare um, the, uh, the Fed and the ECB from that perspective of inclusiveness, because uh, the employment objective that the Fed has explicitly in its mandate, together with price stability, is the, 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 the instrument through which inclusiveness can be taken into account for purposes of monetary policy. And you know, to measure that, clearly uh, Chair Powell and his, his uh, FOMC um, have granular, detailed information about employment rate, participation, unemployment, and they can really drill down into um, uh, minorities, employment or unemployment, uh, improvement, progress in that respect. The ECB does not have uh, employment as one of its, um, as its objective, because our uh, mandate is price stability, full stop. Now we do have secondary objectives and you can include in the secondary objectives, multiple factors in particular, uh, the economic uh, goals that are pursued uh, by the European institutions at large. But we don't have as much of, of an impetus on employment, which is the right channel to assess inclusiveness. And do you think, I mean, you mentioned climate change earlier and this is part and parcel of your review and while it is not a mandate, you, your colleagues at the ECB have shown very clearly how it can impact monetary policy you know, thinking, how it impacts financial stability risks. What do you think is the best way for a central bank to encourage sort of a carrot and sticks approach, if you like, and align sort of the prices and markets um, that people dictate 
do the values that you are talking about that society has to stop climate change sort of posing such a threat. Okay. The key players, the driver of that bus, if you will, are not the central bank governors. They are the finance ministers, they are the governments, they are the policymakers. But what we central bankers can do is to uh, align and join forces with finance ministers, with governments, in order to contribute our share in what is and should be a common cause for all, where each and every one of us, wherever we are, ask ourselves, what can I contribute? What is within the parameters of my mandate that will actually have an impact on what is that common cause of fighting climate change? And I think that from a central bank perspective, you can do it in two different ways. One is by asking yourselves from each and every segment of your action, how can climate change um, lead me to vary my models, to better understand uh, where natural interest rate is, to better appreciate how much monetary policy room I have, uh, to better factor in uh, the risk that climate change uh, um, has on um, the inflation uh, measurements and inflation in general and how fiscal and monetary intersect through, for instance, uh, the intervention of carbon tax. That's number one. And it, it has many, many ramifications. It means changing the models that we use to make sure that it's in there. It means making sure that we anticipate such things as carbon taxation. It means that we understand better the behavior of consumers to see whether or not they change their saving patterns, depending on how they assess uh, climate risks going forward. The second aspect of what we can do is actually from a, a, a risk management point of view, look at our portfolios, whether non-monetary portfolios, which we are already doing quite a lot, or monetary portfolios, which means should I continue valuing collaterals in the way I do, or should I make sure that I'm attentive to the taxonomy that is now putting, being put in place and improved in the course of 21. Uh, and I think the same goes for purchases, for those central banks that are purchasing corporate bonds, as the ECB does. Should we pay more attention to taxonomy going forwards? And the third element, which I, I touch on only very briefly, because we have this separation and this sort of Chinese wall between supervision and, and, and banking, um, and central banking monetary policy determination is through supervision, is by expecting that banks will themselves measure the climate change impact on their portfolio, on the value of their corporate clients and the value of the collaterals that uh, they, they pick up along the way. Uh, in addition to that, that supervision arm should, of course, use the tools that it has, which includes stress testing, uh, which includes um, guiding principles. And, and that is, is being done as we speak by the ECB, because I think that we, we tried to move as fast as we could. And are you uh, using those sort of modeling things that you talked about in the first round already? Or how far are you along the line 
so finessing those models and making it an integral part of decision making. Well, as you rightly said, uh, climate change is one of the components of our strategy review. And uh, we have that agreement amongst uh, members of the governing council that uh, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. And I, I lead the process of the strategy review with that very much in mind. So I'm fairly convinced that we will, uh, uh, at the end of the process, settle on revisions of our models. We have begun that exercise, by the way, because it's, it's not an, an instantaneous process. It's one that actually takes quite a bit of time, but we have begun that process and I'm, I'm sure it will be rolled out in a much more uh, decisive and determined way once the strategy review is over. And I don't know, while the review isn't perhaps over, I don't know whether I could ask you for your personal thoughts on where you stand on the sort of pure green, light green, sort of semi-olive colour, whether, you know, in, uh, when one looks at green bonds or anything, should one also include transition sort of funding and say, well, that's also worth funding, maybe clearly labelled, but should the green taxonomy be widened enough to include things like natural gas? I mean, that's a huge debate at the moment. I don't know where you personally think, I know it's not necessarily agreed at the review stage. You know, my take on that is uh, that there should be as much integrity and as much as uh, science-based understanding of uh, uh, the multiple shades of green. And it's a matter for uh, the Commission uh, and the European Parliament to decide upon. They've, they've, they've moved ahead rapidly since July. The taxonomy is in place. It certainly settles what is green. Uh, there is more underway at the moment uh, as we speak, and I think the 21st of April will see uh, developments, and, and it will be an ongoing process because clearly, uh, while there are some clear-cut um, uh, identification of what is green, there is also some not-so-clear-cut identification of those that are more in the brown but are trying to move into the green and which have to be supported from a financial point of view into that transition. So the, uh, I think the, 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 the zero net budget, uh, zero net emission budget uh, is also going to be an area where more work will be done. And I have to say that I'm very impressed at the moment by the, the sort of commonality of views across the board and across the pond um, including the United States, in order to move in the right direction. Okay. Um, let me ask you about another big project, not necessarily that you own this time, and you have enough on your plate, um, which is the reform of the Stability and Growth Pact. Not your problem, in, you know, indirectly perhaps, but you both, when you were French finance minister in the past, you have been the head of the IMF and given advice to governments about what sort of, what is the best model for fiscal policy what sort of things do you think we should be looking at for all institutions that care about the euro's well-being and soundness what should the stability pact reform think about the big picture one not the short term about extending sort of suspension well you kind of responded for me by saying this is not really my business anymore um i will only say this uh, first of all i think it's it's a good thing uh, that um, the Commission and the, the, uh, the, the Council and the Finance Ministers uh, have this agreement that the escape clause will apply until the end of 22. 
because that really coincides with what we perceive as a possible horizon uh, for um, you know the, 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 the pandemic to, um, to be behind us. We don't know for sure, but we certainly look at uh, 22 as being the year when the European uh, countries will get back to pre-COVID-19 uh, um, you know, uh, growth. I think the second point I would make is that Europe works on the basis of rules. It is a rules-based uh, construction and an extraordinary one, one that is often criticized, that sometimes stumbles along the way, but which eventually, and for the last 70 years, has uh, uh, stood the course of crisis and, and criticism for that matter. And rules are important. So there will have to be some rules, whether they will be the same as the ones we had that we narrated from way back, probably not, because times have changed and the level of debt, uh, the necessary measures that had to be taken have had the impact on uh, European societies and European economies. So I would hope that the best brains will assemble to define what will be the new stability and growth pact and, uh, and will have uh, basic uh, principles of simplicity, of operationality, uh, and, uh, and will support actually, uh, you know, counter-cyclical uh, operations more so than, than was the case in the past. And one of the things that the ECB, time immemorial, as far as I can remember anyway, has called for is better structural reforms. I mean, that goes hand in hand with having more latitude on budgets and stuff like that. It's a hard time to ask anybody to do structural reforms now. But how focused do you think minds are when you talk to finance ministers and people in governments around the Eurozone? You know, I talk, I talk to quite a few very determined finance ministers who fully appreciate that what has taken place in Europe with next generation EU, this unbelievable breakthrough uh, in, in the European Union, countries deciding to jointly borrow and to give grants uh, to the most affected ones, which had never happened in the past, is a moment that needs to be a success. And for that moment to be a success, it has to be transformative. So I see many countries that are determined to uh, face those changes, to go through the structural reforms that are by necessity painful because you change the order of things because of that breakthrough, because of that moment in European history where solidarity is not just in words, but is displayed in euros and where they cannot miss that opportunity. Perfect. I have a lot more questions, but I want to give the audience a chance to ask theirs. So I'm going to throw it back to Rob, who's been collecting questions. I'll come back at the end with a couple more for you. But Rob, let me hand over to you and the audience questions. Sure, sure. Thank you. This is a great conversation. It's obviously sparked a lot of, a lot of questions. Um, uh, they're sort of in different groups. Let me, uh, let me start with one. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of questions about the fiscal response to the pandemic uh, by the United States. 
Um, and some questions about whether it's too much. So some people have pointed out that Larry Summers had called the fiscal response a substantially excessive. He's been uh, on the record about that. Um, what's your take, uh, Madame Lagarde, on the U.S. fiscal response? Is there a concern that it's too much, that it will spark inflation, or that Europe will be left behind because uh, European nations aren't putting so much money into the economy? You know, I think the jury is out. And uh, when I look at those who take the floor on this issue and who know the U.S. economy better than anybody else, you have a large majority uh, the, who support uh, the fact that there will not be uh, significant inflation or reflation arising out of this uh, fiscal stimulus. I think it's all a factor of really how, you, how where is the output gap at the moment? How much slack is there in the economy? What will be the bottlenecks and how much uh, price pressure there will be as a result? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what impact it will, it will have on, on the euro area. And uh, in that respect, um, we see positive spillovers coming out of the U.S., um, fiscal stimulus that has been voted already. As I, I just said um, earlier on, we, we see 0.3% additional GDP. Uh, we see 0.15% uh, additional inflation uh, on, the, uh, on the medium term horizon. Th that is positive as far as we're concerned. And uh, you know, we, we also have a monetary policy instrument and responses uh, in order to actually resist uh, those yield increase that uh, we would see as uh, unwarranted or premature as far as the, uh, the euro area is concerned. Um, let me turn to climate also. You, you, you and Swa have spoken quite a bit about this, but there are quite a few questions. Uh, one quite, kind of concrete one here is how important is this year's climate change, COP26, in terms of addressing the overall climate emergency and what role will central banks play? You know, I think the, the Glasgow COP26 is, is a, a critically important moment, uh, if only because there is much increased or added momentum around the world than there was even uh, during the, uh, the, the, the Paris uh, COP, if you will, when, when the Paris Agreement was, uh, was uh, struck. The fact that the US has completely turned around uh, and, and decided that climate change was uh, critically important going forward and is now really sort of moving uh, forward both at the treasury level and at the Fed's level uh, are going to have an impact on how you know, COP26 evolves. But I wouldn't be surprised if there were some uh, significant breakthrough and, and move towards accelerated response to the climate change threat that we face. And I think it will also enlarge beyond pure climate change. It will probably include uh, broader environmental goals, such as the protection of biodiversity, for instance, which, has, which had, had not been at the forefront back in the uh, previous COPs. Well, you answered another question. Biodiversity just could come up as well. Um, let me ask you just to turn, uh, today Coinbase uh, went public in the United States. It looks like it has a market cap of something uh, in the order of $150 billion. So lots of talk about digital currency here, lots of questions. Um, you know, what? one of the questions that came up is what kind of regulation should we expect in coming years with regards to cryptocurrencies by central banks? 
Uh, I'm not sure that that regulation will come from the central banks. I think regulations will come from the, uh, you know, the, the, the authorities in charge of regulation and then supervision. Uh, if you look at Europe, for instance, uh, MICA, which is the regulation concerning those instruments, is, is now uh, in, in, in review and will include uh, appropriate uh, regulatory framework for uh, the crypto assets. I wouldn't call them cryptocurrencies, by the way, because I don't think that they are cryptocurrencies. They are crypto assets. They should be well uh, parked in the regulatory environment within which we function, and there should be enough supervision so that consumers appreciate what risk they go into and uh, and uh, what uh, speculation uh, they, they are um, the object of. The, the other sort of corollary question is that the ECB is doing a lot of work on a digital euro. While things are still at a very early stage, the huge response to your consultation showed how much interest there was in the subject. Why go there at all? And sort of in a broad outline, maybe what would it look like? Um, why go there? Uh, clearly because there is a demand. Uh, we are seeing throughout Europe and, and uh, to various degrees, depending on countries, uh, a shift by uh, consumers to digital tools when it comes to uh, ordering, uh, to uh, purchasing, to paying. And when you look at countries like, for instance, Sweden, it's fairly obvious. Now, Sweden is outside the euro area, even though we uh, do interact on our, um, on our payment infrastructure. But if you look at a country like the Netherlands, there has been a clear shift towards digital payment and less and less use of cash. The same is even true in Germany. You know, Germany was famous within the euro area for its extensive use of cash. About 80% of the transactions were conducted in cash. That has also reduced quite a bit. Is it to say that it will substitute cash? No, but there is clearly a demand on the part of consumers for digital payments and digital currency. Second, there are around um, attempts by private uh, issuers of something to actually come up with a digital thing, uh, which would be convertible in, in various uh, fiat uh, currencies, fiat money, if you will. Um, clearly, the dollar is the one that is being targeted at the moment. We think we central banks, and uh, I'm not the only one here, uh, there are you know, at least 80 uh, central banks around the world that are looking at digital currencies. Uh, we think that it's uh, a duty of us to actually have available digital currencies uh, that would operate to the benefit of consumers. So what would it look like? Well, um, it could be used like banknotes. I don't think it is like banknotes because it will not have the degree of anonymity that banknotes have. And, and I, I find it very interesting, by the way, that in the consultation that we, got, we conducted, um, that consumers who responded in very large numbers said, uh, we want our privacy to be protected, but we, want, we don't want anonymity because they understand the risk of anonymity when it comes to digital uh, currencies. And they appreciate that the financing of uh, money laundering, the financing of terrorism cannot be, uh, cannot use digital currency as a cover. 
So there, there is huge wisdom in, in, in the response that we got from the, uh, from the Europeans. Um, thank you for that. I'm just sort of bigger picture, picture questions sort of related to COVID. How can the leading economies of the world and central bankers by implication work better together to prepare for large scale shocks, pandemics, disasters, I don't know, earthquakes, whatever it might be that seem to be occurring with greater frequency? Well, when I look at what has happened, um, I have to say that um, central bankers actually uh, coordinated, cooperated, compared notes, responded uh, very quickly, very efficiently. When I look at the reactivation of the swap lines, when I look at the repo lines that we put in place, uh, the response was very rapid and very significant. We, we had learned uh, back during the great financial crisis that that cooperation was a necessary response. I think we, we did it yet again. And uh, you know there was no question of um, uh, time of the day, time of the night, size of the bank, um, personality of the, of the governor, we all ganged together to make sure that we responded with enough liquidity and with enough reassurance so that we could deliver on our mandates, but we could also keep the economy afloat despite this pandemic threat. So it's quite, that's an interesting point. I know Mark Carney has written about this and made that point as well. And, and it's, of course, you were involved in the, in the um, response to the financial crisis. Is there, but, but, but central bankers have done that. World leaders don't seem, and we seem to have all gone in different, different uh, directions in many cases. I mean, the vaccines argument point is an, is an obvious one. Um, are, we, are you worried about the leadership of the world effectively being prepared to deal with something as, as dramatic as climate change? I think Glasgow COP26 will give us the answer. And uh, it, it will have to be a show of being in it together, fighting against it together, and making sure that those that are uh, most exposed, most at risk, also have the support of the others. Um, there has been much progress on, on that front between the early days of the UNCCC and the various COPs, uh, but still much needs to be done. We'll, see, then, the, we'll see it in the vaccination process as well. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's striking that advanced economies are much more advanced in the vaccination uh, than the emerging market economies and even more so the fragile or developing countries. As I and, said, vaccination will, by all, of all will actually determine whether we are out of it or not. Right, no, that's absolutely true. Are you concerned that the, the, the control, that the way that the pandemic has panned out will create more inequality um, in the developed world and between the developed world and the emerging world? Yes, is the answer. Yes, is the answer. When you look, when you look at those most affected, uh, if you just look at, at, at jobs, those most affected by the pandemic in advanced economies were predominantly uh, the lower paid people, uh, women and young people. So those that were already uh, in, at, at a disadvantage in many ways uh, are going to suffer setbacks. If you listen to the World Bank or the IMF, they will also indicate you know, how many more people are in extreme poverty as a result of the pandemic. Uh, so yes, inequalities will have will have worsened. 
within countries and between countries as well, which is why something like next generation EU is critically important in this part of the world, in Europe, so that those countries at a disadvantage actually receive more than those that will cope better with the pandemic. Madame Lagarde, can I just jump in and ask you as a follow-up to that? I think Rob has a couple more questions perhaps. But I mean, what you say about inequality within countries, it's hard for a central bank like the ECB, which looks holistically or traditionally has at the Eurozone as a whole, and then to look at this focus as no one left behind, if you like, in countries or within countries. I mean, is that something that the central bank can do? Well, we contribute to it. As I said, we have we have a, a single we have a mandate which is uh, this uh, price stability, and I think that a central bank like the ECB contributes to reducing inequalities to the extent that it can within that mandate. Uh, you know, it, it has been calculated over the course of that period between 2014 and 2019 that the ECB contributed to the creation of this additional 11 million jobs. It didn't create the 11 million jobs, let's face it, but it certainly contributed to the creation of these jobs by maintaining price stability, by making sure that the economy functions, that making sure that, uh, the, the, that corporates from SMEs to large accounts can have, actually have access to financing. And I think the same is true in the period between March 20 and, and, and now we have contributed to in, you know, reducing the impact that the pandemic would have had, had it not been for us uh, being extremely active and very fast on the, on the pedal. Thank you. Back to you, Rob. Okay, well, I'm gonna go through these, these, these questions. Here's one, I've, I gotta ask it because uh, it's so direct. Is there a possible rate hike plan for 2022 and what would lead you to that? <laughs> uh, I think that's a very much too short a horizon as far as I'm concerned. Got it, that's a good answer. Um, and by the way, for those who are really interested in those questions, and I can see who is asking those, uh, we give very, very clear forward guidance uh, both in relation to our asset purchase programs and in relation to uh, interest rates uh, hikes. So, you know, it's, it's, we cannot be clearer than that. And uh, we are clearly referring to inflation converging, you know, significantly sustainably towards our aim. We are very far away from that. Yeah. Would the shift to digital payments have occurred if it hadn't been for the COVID pandemic? Sorry, I, did, I missed the beginning of your question. Sorry, I mean, it, would the shift to, to the, the dramatic shift, let's say, to digital payments have occurred if it hadn't been for the pandemic or the scale of the pandemic? Uh, probably not at the, at the speed uh, as we are seeing it. There were only a few central banks that were looking at it, uh, China being a point in case. Uh, because it started back in, in 2015. But the pandemic has accelerated just about everything. Every phenomenon that you can think of has been accelerated uh, by, uh, by the pandemic. Payment is one. Yeah. A question from George Buckley at Nomura. How are decisions made about how many bonds the ECB buys each week? The BOE is very precise, but this is not the case for the ECB. Why does it change from week to week? And on what basis is the decision made? 
Well, as I, as I indicated, uh, we, uh, back in December, we decided that uh, we would preserve favorable financing conditions. And uh, by moving from this sort of volume based to the dynamics of financing conditions, uh, we conduct a joint assessment. We look at the whole range of financing from risk-free to um, you know, volume and rates of uh, lending to corporates and households on the one hand. And then we look at uh, inflation uh, outlook and, and we jointly assess the two. Uh, and then we decide what kind of uh, uh, purchases is necessary. In March, we decided that a significant increase was needed and if you compare the average purchases on a weekly basis before that, and the average, average purchases since that, we've increased by more than 50%. So we, we determined that that significant increase is in line with what we want to do, which is to preserve favorable financing conditions. Swaha, do you wanna ask one last question before we wrap up? Absolutely. Um, let me ask you, we're always fighting the last war, Madame Lagarde, like normally our heads are very preoccupied about the pandemic, preventing another health crisis, these sort of things at the moment and making our economy anti-fragile or resilient, whatever you want to call it, or this sort of crisis. What do you think we should be worrying about next? And what is the next war, if you like, that we should be thinking about prevent protecting ourselves against? You know, on that front, I, I share the view of, um, of Jay Powell. Um, I'm very concerned that with more and more sophisticated uh, payment infrastructures, more and more actors uh, in, in, involved on the financial scene, uh, that we are exposed uh, to potential cyber risks and cyber attacks uh, against which we have to, to defend. Um, this is in addition to all the other risks that, that we have to, to face and, and that are um, on, on our radar screen. But this one, which has not really materialized because we've seen a couple of serious incidences uh, most recently, but this one is, is uh, something that preoccupies me uh, on, the, uh, on, the, on the financial scene that we operate. Thank you very much. Let me hand back to Rob. Okay, well, thank you, Swaha, and most of all, thank you, Madame Lagarde, for your time today. Uh, really appreciate that. Great pleasure to be with both of you. This podcast was produced by Paula Gill and Freddie Joyner in New York. If you haven't already done so, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob Wancox. Goodbye.